Madden Luke's Sci-Fi Sanctuary. The year is 3013. The galaxy is scintillating in the mellow light. Two galactic pilgrims seek out vistas in the samurai future to bring forth the unity of the cosmic shaman. Opening the door of the pantheon of mystics, the evil sorcerer wizard powers the engine of science, seeking to forever alter the sacred balance, traveling on effervescent balls of summer fire. This Christmas, spend your time on yesterday's Enterprise from Star Trek The Next Generation. In the year 1990, there was a TV show about some nerds on a spaceship, and then they went to another universe and couldn't do their hippie stuff. Who writes this shit? <laughs> I don't know. I think we got some writers around. But uh, yeah, today we're getting a little bit... We, we usually do movies here, but uh, today we're going TV. Although I'd say it's pretty cinematic TV. Yeah. It's about as cinematic as TV gets. It's uh, The Next Generation Season 3 episode, uh, Yesterday's Enterprise. Yeah. So uh, this is Matt. This is Luke. Welcome to our side. By sanctuary, we could do it in duo if you I want. I don't know. We used to then. We didn't. In stereo. No, we didn't. <laughs> it, it just keeps evolving. I, I think that's a fun thing. But uh, yeah, this one we we do have a, a bit of a treat today because um, we we like to find people that are you know good podcasters in the entertainment field. But uh, today we have one of the fellows who uh, actually wrote the story or yeah. co-wrote the story for this episode. Uh, he worked on in the production office for for TNG. And um, started one of the first big Star Trek fan clubs, I believe, Starfleet. Uh, hello, Eric Stillwell. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to be <laughs> Okay, right on. I think this is the first time we've had a guest who was actually involved in the thing we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, we have some more on the so way. That's yeah, but you're the first us. on this, so yeah, thanks yeah. for joining us. <laughs> Almost feels like we're a real podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and you know... Yesterday's Enterprise could have been a movie because after Next Generation ended and they started making movies, Rick Berman said that if he had known they were going to make movies, they would have saved Yesterday's Enterprise. Well, yeah, we, the last Star Trek we recorded actually was Generations, and we talked about that a little. Yeah, and it would have been really cool if the Enterprise it was the Enterprise A instead of the mm. Enterprise B, and then you would have had Kirk and Spock and all the characters saving the future yeah I, won I wondered if that was something that was discussed before the episode aired but that's not the case it wasn't i mean the original spec script that my writing partner wrote was based on the original he okay. wanted it to, well he wanted it to be but that that was one of the rules that um, the writer's guide for next generation didn't allow references back to the original series so huh. he decided to just skip ahead a generation or so. Can we lay down? And later, in the, they started doing references later in the in the mm. series, but that's once they had grounded themselves with their own history. Your own serious trekking. I, I I was just I looked at your Wikipedia page and it started. Um, you were you had a fan club before doing TNG. The Starfleet. Yeah. When I was in high school, I I uh, took over. A, a defunct 
fan club that had existed previously but had basically gone out of business and i restarted it and and uh it became international club with thousands of members and it even made the guinness book of world records as the largest sci-fi fan club in the world nice <laughs> and um how did you end up uh starting working in the production offices at uh, tng well, I was a huge Star Trek fan, as you know, from childhood, and um, I always dreamt of the, the the opportunity. But but in the seventies, that really wasn't an option for me. And I went to college in the early nineteen eighties, and I decided um, after Star Wars had come out in nineteen seventy seven, I was fascinated with the filmmaking process, where Star Trek had inspired more of my interest in social philosophy and stuff. So I majored in political science in college, but I became fascinated with filmmaking after I saw Star Wars when I was 15. So I decided I was going to go to Hollywood and try to work in the entertainment industry. And the very first job I got was as a production assistant on a Warner Brothers film with James Garner and James Woods that was filming up in Oregon where I lived. And one of the executive producers on that movie um, was the father of Denise Crosby's stand-in on Next Generation. And when we wrapped on that film, I immediately sent my resume down to Hollywood where they were getting ready to start the Next Generation. And when I was, I went down to Los Angeles for the wrap party on the Warner Brothers movie. And while I was down there, I got a call from, uh, from the producers who called me in for an interview to be a production assistant on Next Generation. But I didn't get the job because the people they hired had been uh, people who worked on the Paramount lot and had experience working on the lot. They knew where all the buildings were, so they wanted people who could hit the ground running. So as soon as I had an opportunity, uh, I moved to Los Angeles and ended up getting a job as a tour guide at Paramount Studios. And in addition to giving tours, we also did audience control on shows like Cheers and and uh, uh, all, what were the other shows? I can't remember. Anyway, so, so we got some experience working on some of the live productions. And then uh, one of the production assistants that they had hired on Next Generation got promoted. And the same week, they were premiering the uh, pilot episode for the cast and crew at one of the studio theaters on the lot. And they needed two studio pages to come and do door duty. And I got asked to do that. So while I was doing door duty at the screening of Encounter at Farpoint, Bob Jessman, who was the producer who had interviewed me originally, saw me and he's like, what are you doing here? And I'm like, I work here. <laughs> <laughs> and literally the next day he called and offered me a job on the show. Nice. That's, how I That's old school hustle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So something I've always been interested in because I was born when Next Gen was already running. So to me, Next Gen is Star Trek and then the original series um, is the older thing. But as someone who was, you know, old enough to work in the industry when Next Gen started, how did you feel about it initially with, you know, your memories of the original series and here's this new one? 
Well, I was three years old when the original Star Trek premiered, <laughs> so I didn't start watching it until it was in reruns in the early 1970s. And um, I was such a huge fan that when when we my father was in the Air Force and we were living in Idaho at the time, and the local station in Boise. Um, stopped showing the reruns during the summer and put Perry Mason reruns on instead. So my friend and I started a letter writing campaign and got 300 signatures to convince the station to put the reruns of Star Trek back on, nice. which they they agreed to do. So by the time I got to uh, Paramount Studios, it was kind of like I had to pinch myself every day just to believe that this was really happening. Um, and one of the cool things about Paramount Studios, where it's located in Hollywood, it's the only major studio located actually in Hollywood. All the other studios are either in Burbank or in Century City and other parts of Los Angeles. But in at Paramount, when you're walking between the sound stages, you can literally look up on the hill and see the Hollywood sign. And every day, I would just think, I can't believe I can't believe I'm here doing this. And, it, it was, and of course, it wasn't all fun and games uh, because it's hard work and you get in trouble and things don't go right every day. But still, um, it was pretty amazing. And of course, you know, when we first started, we didn't know if the show would be successful. It, it seems hard to believe now, all these years later, with like 10 or 12 different Star Trek shows in development or in production at this point. That, that there ever was a question, will Next Generation survive? In the beginning, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of critics, a lot of fans doubted it. Even, even the actors, I don't think, were planning on a long career and, uh, in Star Trek. I think that's one of the reasons Denise Crosby decided to leave the show. And then um, I would say, in my personal opinion, during the third season after Michael Piller became the head writer and the showrunner on the series, that's when the show made a... I think most people agree that sort of third season is when it really got, got into its gear. In fact, um, I think it was when yesterday's Enterprise aired. I was, about to, I was actually about to say, this one does feel like yeah. kind of a turning point episode. That was a linchpin for me. I know I, I was eight years old when Next Gen's first season aired, and uh, you know, my dad and I watched it, and kind of like, I, I liked it because I was eight and I, I, I still like some of those episodes today, but it was a little clunkier at the time. And um, I, I think it was one of my dad's coworkers saying, you need to watch the Star Trek episode. And, and that was yesterday's Enterprise when we put it on. And oh, this actually can be like as good as the original series. <laughs> yeah, well, we've got a friend at work, um, our colleague Rob. He's, he wants to start watching TNG and he's been really struggling to get through season one. And I keep promising, okay, I'm going to sit down and write you an episode, of, list of the episodes worth watching. And I feel like by the time I get to, yeah, it'll be around this point, midway through season three, it'll just be like, and from here on, you can just watch them all. Yeah. I, I think he gave up when we had uh, Luxwana Troy's uh, head in the box. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he, he gave up there. <laughs> yeah, the first couple of seasons were a little, a little strange, but some of the highlights for me, because... Of, the producers knew I was a huge fan. They would sometimes come to me and ask me Star Trek-y questions. So like the the episode, The Neutral Zone, where they encountered the Romulans. Right. There, I guess there was a writer strike happening and 
they need <laughs> they needed someone to come up with some names for the Romulans, and so one of the producers came to me and said, "Eric, we need we need a couple of Romulan names." And and I looked at him and I'm like, "Am I just supposed to make it up?" And he's <laughs> like, oh, "Look it up in a Romulan encyclopedia." <laughs> <laughs> You can find those at your library. <laughs> so I got to make some tiny little creative contributions along the way, which was kind of fun. Uh, you didn't try and uh, wiggle yourself a writing credit or a story credit off the back of that? That <laughs> <laughs> one, no. Well, I would, I would certainly take uh, Straits Enterprise over, over the neutral zone for, for my on-screen credit. <laughs> <laughs> my very first screen credit was probably the worst episode of Next Generation called um, Shades, Shades of Grey. Yeah. <laughs> that was my very first screen credit because the producers, um, again, I think it was during a strike, and they they only had a, an outline of a script for a bottle show where they were going to fill the whole episode with clips from earlier episodes. Right. So they made me go do the video clip research that took 80 hours in one week to <laughs> – transfer all these clips to, to videotapes so that they could try to fill in the, the plot holes of the story. So I, I, after working 80 hours in one week, I said to the producers, I'm like, I think I need a screen credit. <laughs> and they agreed to it. It was an end credit at the end of the show. As a, like, Ali as well. Yeah. Wow. How did it get a season three? Writer's strike. <laughs> See, because when you first start telling that story, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, you sit at your computer and you scrub through it. And I was like, but no, that wasn't how you did it back then, I guess. No, no, no. I literally had to sit in, like, over in the post-production office with the big, giant VHS tapes and watch hours and hours and then, and then write down the time codes for each segment that they were going to cut onto another tape. It, it took a lot of time. Yeah, I had the same experience in a very different context. Uh, when I was in the police and I had to catch a shop a theft thief who was stealing from the donations at a church, but all we had was a VHS tape CCTV. <laughs> we were at the point where we were mostly working with at least DVDs, maybe like just a USB stick and this church is like, well, here you go. And they give us like six tapes. <laughs> well, the irony of working on next generation in the 1980s was the technology in the production offices was still like primitive compared to Star Trek. So we right. had ro rotary dial phones. <laughs> Most people didn't even have desktop, desktop computers yet. And the script coordinator at the time used this electric typewriter and she freaked out one day when it wouldn't work. And I was a production assistant, so I came over to see what was wrong and it, she had turned it off. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and yet on screen, they're, they're using, you know, what's almost like a modern iPad. So it's... Yeah. When you watch it today, it, it feels, it it feels almost high-tech even now. But yeah. yeah. And all those things on the show didn't exist in real life. Yeah, of course. And now everybody has them and don't, we don't even think about it. <laughs> I feel like one of those teens in the YouTube videos where it's like, oh, teens react to a rotary phone. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I know um, we, we teach English here in Japan, and recently we had one of the, I think, maybe, maybe it's just a my school, but one of the drill cards was like, film. And just all the students were just staring at like, what is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, well, it's for cameras. You put it in to take, like, oh, is it a battery? No. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> yeah. That's that funny. Of, That's funny. 
But then we also working in Japan. We do still use fax machines, and we until like a matter of months ago, we had paper time cards and stuff. Yeah, there's a big deal now about like not like using your physical stamp on papers. Or like let's go digital in 2020. So, or <laughs> well, the very least, go signatures. Yeah. <laughs> Um, let's get a little deeper in this episode. Uh, Luke, you're going to take us through a, a quick ride on this one? Uh, yeah, this is going to be coming off the dome, but I watched it with my lunch today, so it shouldn't be too difficult. Okay, let's roll it. Enterprise D encounters a rift in space, and something begins to emerge. Suddenly, we find ourselves in a very different Enterprise D, a militaristic federation at war with the Klingon Empire. And from the rift emerges the Enterprise C, the D's predecessor. Nobody notices this change apart from Guinan, who has a vague sense that something is wrong. After a grueling decision, the Enterprise D convinces the crew of the Enterprise C, now led by Tasha Yar, to go back to their own timeline and die an honorable death to prevent the war. And the, the D blows up, right? The D. This is a first blow up. Does it blow up? I remember it almost blowing it, up. And then it goes. It doesn't blow up. But yeah, we don't see a blow up on screen. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we, we see some explosions on the bridge and Riker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like oh, Riker's gone. The ship's gone. <laughs> <laughs> no um, one's there to mount it. <laughs> it. It created one of the best scenes of all time when. When Captain Picard jumps over, when he the vaults rail. the back, that was very. And the Klingons say, "Surrender and prepare to be boarded," and he's like, "That'll be the day." Yeah, well, it's a much more grizzled uh, Picard in this one. But, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, the funny thing about that is, one day I was on the set, and Patrick and all the actors were trying to wrap their minds around this time. This was the very first time travel episode that Next Generation did, and Patrick didn't understand if he was the same person or a different person. Right. So I was explaining to him that he's the same person up until 22 years in the past, and then the, he took a different road, which was a, a world of battle and war and confrontation. And then Jonathan Frakes tried to get me to explain the whole thing, and 
to this day, every time he sees me, he still says, I still don't understand that episode. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We we can keep it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I, because at the very young age, I used to watch the Terminator films over and over. I feel like I've somehow made my brain four-dimensional. Because people always tell me time traveler stories are confusing and I never get it. I'm like, oh, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> and now you're going to tell me that by the time you watch Terminator, he was governor of California already. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no his quite, gra- his grandmother there. showed him uh, oh, yeah. Terminator moves as a toddler. <laughs> I was like four years old when I was watching the Terminator films on a loop. <laughs> Um, what was the uh, uh, the genesis of the story? I, I, you kind of uh, picked up the ball with your co-writer on this one, I think. Yeah. So the the original um, teleplay that was a spec script, which means speculative, it was submitted on speculation. We used to get thousands and thousands of these scripts, but I I met Trent and and uh, his script was sort of in the pipeline for a long long time because it had to be read by multiple different people and during this time that uh, he was waiting to find out what would happen he and i became friends and he started working at the studio as a tour guide and <laughs> and that was the year that star trek 5 came out and one of the benefits of being a studio employee they have employee screenings of all the films so we went to this small theater on the studio lot and saw star trek 5 one night and we both hated it (laughs) and we we started dissecting it and we ended up at some dive diner on sunset boulevard till two o'clock in the morning just critiquing this movie and we we were both looking at each other going we could write a better Star Trek episode than this. And I had been working on this idea where the Enterprise um, goes back to the Guardian of Forever planet from the original series, except this time there's a Vulcan archaeological team working on the planet, and the Enterprise is taking Ambassador Sarek, Spock's father, back to the Guardian of Forever to greet the archaeological team when they finish their research. But in the process, there's an accident back in time. And Surak, who is the founder of Vulcan philosophy, gets killed. And suddenly, um, the whole future is altered. And the Romulans and the Vulcans have never... They've rejoined and created this massive empire to destroy the Klingons. And now they're working on destroying the Federation. And because Sarek was on the planet... Um, the people who are on the planet, their memory is not affected. But everybody on the ship thinks they've been at war with the Romulans, and now they think he's a Romulan spy. But Sarek has to convince Picard that he's not a spy and that this is all a mistake. And the only solution that he can come up with is that if Picard allows him to go back in time, he would replace Sarek. Okay. And that's because when I was a kid watching the original Star Trek series, I used to think it's kind of weird that Spock's father's name sounds like Surak and Sarek. <laughs> and, and then one day I thought to myself, what if they were the same person? <laughs> and this is how it all happened. So I pitched this idea to Michael Piller and he's like, oh no, we don't want to use gimmicks from the original Star Trek, blah, blah, blah. Well, at the same time, uh, 
Trent and I had been at a Star Trek convention up in San Jose where Denise Crosby had been the guest and she said to me uh, you guys should write a, an episode for me so I can come back to Star Trek so when when we one day I heard the producers talking about how Denise Crosby's agent had contacted them and wanted to come back so I went Trent and I decided if we combined his original Yesterday's Enterprise idea with my Sarek idea and merged them together, because in his original spec script for Yesterday's Enterprise, there was no time alteration. It was just oh, the ship okay. past shows up, and now um, Picard has to decide, do we send them back or do we not send them back? We know they're going to die, so we have this moral dilemma. Do we tell them or do we not tell them? Oh, okay, but there wasn't them. like a specific it, stakes on the screen. And this, the, the stake more was if we tell them what happens, will it alter Right, the but you don't really see an altered timeline. Right, so that was the story. But we decided to combine it with my story where there is an altered timeline. Mm. And instead of Sarek being the catalyst character, we'd say Tasha Yar could be the catalyst character. And because um, Captain Garrett dies in our timeline instead of her own timeline, that it would be a balance in the universe if Tasha went back with them to, to give them a fair chance at the battle with the Romulans. And so I went in and I pitched this idea again to Michael Pillar and he called Trent in and to make sure Trent agreed that we were going to combine our stories and share story credit. And so he hired us to write the story and that's how it all came about. Yeah. I, I was reading recently. It's just, it's good to give uh, Tasha a proper TV death and, you know, getting whapped across the yeah. soundstage by a special effect. <laughs> yeah. The first death was not great. <laughs> well, I always thought that that was the, one of the best parts of the story when she finds out from Guinan that she was supposed to be dead. <clears throat> and does last Picard, but Michael Pillar, who always uh, was always arguing with me about the logic of Tasha replacing Captain Garrett, writes this line for Picard where he says, "It makes no sense at all." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where did uh, Guinan come in? Was she in um, which version did her role? Because uh, this is one of her more prominent roles on the show as well. In fact, it was the only episode that she appeared in that took more than one day of filming for her. Because they usually, because she was a busy movie star back then, they would always write episodes where she would only have to work for one day. And on yesterday's Enterprise, she had to work for two days. But in the original um, early story development, we didn't have Guinan in the story. But the most difficult part of the story development was trying to figure out how do our crew... How do they know something's wrong? Right. So we had all these versions of the story where they had sent a probe into the into the thing before the other Enterprise came through, and then the old probe came back with the old information. Right. And it was just so technical and boring. And so Michael Pillar finally said, you know, what if Guinan just knows that something's wrong because her species 
has sort of like this three dimension, three dimensional or five dimensional like. Yeah, she watched a lot of Terminator when <laughs> when they talked yeah. on her planet. So she's kind of your uh, metaphysical. <laughs> <cheat code. laughs> and one of the key things about the show is um, Trent and I wrote the story, but the the the, the writing staff basically wrote this the teleplay so there was michael pillar and hans weimler and richard manning and ira bear and ron moore and they all <coughs> wrote part of the story into the script and uh it had to happen over thanksgiving weekend because <coughs> excuse me because Whoopi goldberg and denise crosby's schedules didn't match up for the filming date that they wanted to use originally so it was going to film much earlier in december instead of january so the writers had to take home pieces over the thanksgiving weekend and everybody had to come back with their act and put it all together so michael pillar also wrote a lot of it but he wasn't allowed story credit because there were too many writers and the uh, guild wouldn't allow it but but it was his idea to use Dynan as the the catalyst of figuring out that they were in an alternate universe. Well, the Guinan aspect actually it gives an interesting twist on it because it's if it was just like we have the scientific facts on a probe, the decision's easier. Whereas Picard right. has to make the decision on like how much does he trust Guinan. So it ends right. up being a more I think maybe a more powerful character moment that way. Yeah. Definitely. And Michael was always really good at <clears throat> all the character development in the show, so that was a, a great contribution by him. I guess I want to roll a little bit into uh, design and such. As I understand, this this was the Sweeps Week episode when I guess Sweeps Week was actually a thing and I uh, got a little budget bump for this one uh, for all the small details and such. Well, speaking of budget, there was a question I wanted to ask before we move off of Whoopi Goldberg. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which would have been more expensive, an extra day of Whoopi Goldberg shooting or exploding an Enterprise? <laughs> <laughs> I honestly don't know what she was paid so it's hard to say yeah but we had to save the exploding enterprise for brandon braga's episode where they keep going in a oh yeah 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 <laughs> yeah i have to I, I love this one but i do have to call call it my favorite i just like say the enterprise blows up in every commercial break i love that i actually get these two confused yeah so in my head um Frasier is the captain of the Enterprise C, which is not the case. They're two different episodes. Okay, I, I do conflate that a little bit yeah. in my head. Um, captain Garrett's well, very good in this, but yeah. Well, and another funny thing is when we did Shades of Grey, I was trying to convince the producers to have the Enterprise blow up in that episode because I had uh, I found a clip from the USS Yamamoto when oh, yeah. that one blew up. And I said, if, if you use this clip just right, you won't ever see the USS Yamamoto on the hull <laughs> and it'll just look like the Enterprise is blowing up in Riker's mind. They didn't, they didn't buy that. <laughs> well, they bought it a few years later, so that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
But um, yeah, part of the charm of uh, this particular episode is all those little details that I guess they had time to do. Um, even weird things like there's what stairs on the bridge now. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. pretty wild. <laughs> well, and the funny thing is, when we were writing the story, we were trying not to do anything expensive because of the budget. And and uh, but Michael Pillar always told writers, don't write, uh, don't write stories based on what you think the budget is. He just told writers to just write your stories and we'll figure out the budget later. But but we were still trying to be sensitive because we wanted them to actually do the make episode. episode yeah. <laughs> and we're like, if we make it too expensive. So we were pleasantly surprised and kind of shocked when we started seeing the, the dramatic changes. But just the lighting effects alone, I think, made it super dramatic. I, I love the lighting effects on the bridge. Yeah, the um, because me and Matt are both big uniform nerds. So like uh, when we were watching Picard, every time it like flashes back, we're like, "Oh, a new uniform from a different period." So this one, we basically get two new uniforms in one episode. So that's pretty exciting. I thought, I thought Matt's notes about the uniforms, and I totally agree with you. It was so stupid. Like they're walking around without the under collar and they don't have the belt on so there's just belt loops for no reason <laughs> i'm just like why are they doing that but whatever yeah it's a little off-putting i don't know yeah you gotta have a stuffed shirt i guess if you're gonna be uh in a monster <laughs> maroon <laughs> yeah maybe yeah yeah <laughs> And um, yeah, this is still when they just on the uniforms when they still had that weird mix of the uh, old smelly uh, spandex ones and the, uh, the the newer classier ones, I guess. <laughs> well, you know, the uniforms ended up being the famous blooper from yesterday's Enterprise because they actually changed the crew, the, our crew. They changed the uniforms a little bit so they're different from the regular Next Generation show. Hmm. So like the cuffs are different and... And so at the end of the show, when when Jordy's uh, talking to Guinan after the time goes back to normal, he's wearing the wrong uniform. Oh, I didn't even catch that. <laughs> and he's asking Guinan about Tasha, but he's wearing the alternate universe cuffs on his. And some some keen-eyed fans caught that, and that's one of the. the no, you got you got to claim that was deliberate. That was your sequel hook for the later that's episode, where it turns out we had that Jordy or something. <laughs> I, that's what I always said because my job as a script coordinator on the show was for, to do continuity explanations. So whenever fans would come up with some like continuity issue, I would come up with some crazy right. story. This is foreshadowing that the universe didn't go back entirely perfect. And, <laughs> <laughs> and then later on, Ron Moore decided to bring back Denise Crosby as her own daughter, which was kind of an extension of yesterday's enterprise which we never planned but it was an interesting after effect mm. um just while we're still on the design the enterprise c itself is a, is a nice i guess in between design and and i think that has a little bit of a story behind it <laughs> well i'm not sure exactly i know that andrew probert had designed an enterprise c back in the early days of next generation but that wasn't the design that they ended up using uh for the episode because um, it had to be sort of thrown together at the last minute but maybe you know a story that i 
I, I think that's pretty much what I heard. I just, I, it does have a nice, like, right between the uh, feature films and the, the Enterprise D, which uh, worked out rather nicely, so. <laughs> it's, I love it. I, I still wish I had a model of it, but I don't. Um, do you know, I assume one has been produced. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, the, they're out there, but. I, I didn't want to build one. I just wanted one already. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I, I'm the same. <laughs> I've got an A and a D. They're back in the UK, actually. And it, here in Japan, I, I often see model kits of them, but I'm like, oh, but that's a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a Gundam. Of, well, it's actually a Digimon over there, which I've been putting off building for about a month. <laughs> oh, that's I mean, I used to build models when I was a kid. And like one of the things when I was like 12 in my friends and i used to play star trek outside we actually built our own models out of paper plates and cardboard tubes and stuff how do you want better we used to just find bits of bark that we thought looked like spaceships (laughs) (laughs) those were our spaceships no i saw my father building uh ships of the line and i was like i I don't want any part of that too much (laughs) i did used to play um like the warhammer style miniatures games but I was far more interested in playing it than building them. So mine had very simple paint jobs. <laughs> As my brother's the other way. He loves building them, but he doesn't play it so much. Mm. So I'll get him to make me an Enterprise C for Christmas. <laughs> well, there's some people um, on the on Facebook. There's a there's a Facebook page called Shipyards, mm. and and it's all guys building Star Trek models. Some of them are their own designs and stuff. But there's this one guy who's who's doing a Yesterday's Enterprise or a Enterprise C model with the lights and everything in it. Nice. And it looks amazing. Chakra turns to silicone, here trapped within the utopia. Calling countdown for your day's finale, hedonistic cornucopia. It's okay getting a bit crazy. Um, maybe we should think a little bit about the, I don't know, the messages or the, the, the deeper meanings in this episode. Um, are, there, are there any particular, I guess, philosophical points you were trying to get through with the story here? Well, every time I see the episode, I feel like even after 30 years, it really stands up to the test of time in terms of sort of being an anti-war movie. Uh, When Guinan's arguing about how many people have died and Picard's being hesitant about taking a chance that it's all wrong. I, I, I don't think there was a super like hidden meaning to the episode other than we wanted to bring back Tasha Yar. Right. It, it made for an interesting uh, platform because there really was no other way unless you're doing flashbacks or something boring. But I just thought it was a, a cool platform for bringing back Tasha Yar. Yeah, I guess the nice thing, it, it's sort of like we get like, believable human reactions to completely unbelievable situations here. 
um, you can really follow Picard's line of thought, like, you know, his idea that this really, like, <laughs> I guess he didn't quite scream, it doesn't make sense, but um, you can sort of hear him saying that in his mind through half the episode. Well, it's, I like that, obviously, he does, in the end, make the decision that, yeah, we should send them back. And I bet part of me reads that as he knows that it's wrong that the Federation is a war machine. But that's not what Star Trek is about. So in a way, well, that's right, it is all wrong. I also feel like if he, he knows that they're going to be defeated and they're on the last, their last leg. So he sort of kind of resigns himself to let's, I can take this chance because it's, it doesn't really make any difference hmm. at this point. Yeah. It actually, it puts a slightly interesting twist on um, Star Trek VI because this tells us that maybe the Klingons could have won. Yeah. Whereas part of the point of that film is that now the Klingons know they can't beat the Federation, they'll sue for peace. <laughs> right, right. Different timelines. I mean, there's like a 70-year <laughs> gap where they could have found some new dilithium, I know. <laughs> right, right, exactly. But, uh... Yeah, Before exactly. the burn. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, you don't know the burn yet. Okay, we'll get... Yeah, well, we'll use that later. <laughs> yeah. I'm good. Luke's catching up on that particular one. <laughs> I'm guessing that's Discovery. That's Discovery. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry to anyone else listening to this that maybe didn't hit the Discovery yet. That but. was vague enough that I have no idea what you're talking about. Exactly. So it's all good. But if you know the burn, we're, we're burning. That's cool. Um, got me burning. There we go. Got you burning day and night. Is it day and night? No, you said it was last time. That's not the line. Okay, that's what it plays in my head. It's in the third degree. <laughs> this is deep cuts for a song that plays in a nightclub in The Terminator, which Matt got the words wrong too. Twice. <laughs> um, the other big character, I guess, uh, you know, the, the character we obviously get into is Tasha Yar, which is, again, very human reactions to an, a ver an even more unbelievable situation. Picard at least gets to have continuity between the realities where Tar Tasha is like a ghost. <laughs> and I thought Denise Crosby's performance was the best performance of her time on Next Generation, honestly, because she got to be featured and there was some emotional resonance to her having left the show. And even though she'll never admit it, I I think she regretted leaving the show, especially when it became su very successful. Hmm. And that I and obviously she was the one asking to come back, so this was a little nod to her. And of course, one of the other characters that we haven't talked a lot about is um, Trisha Trisha O'Neill, who played Captain Garrett. Hmm. She was fantastic, and she was also a, a fan. Of, of Star Trek. She said when she found out that she had been cast to play Captain Garrett, um, she was trying to to uh, bring out her inner Kirk. That's what she said. <laughs> and and uh, I got to go to a Star Trek convention with her where we were kind of incognito for a little while. And then uh, some fans recognized her and suddenly she was like surrounded with like a mob of people asking for her autograph. And I think actors who guest star on Star Trek sometimes don't realize what an impact they have on mm. the fans. And she was, uh, she was just such a nice person. And um, she also appeared again twice more on Star Trek in different, different roles. She played a Romulan or a Klingon. 
in uh, the episode Suspicions of Next Generation. And she also uh, played a, a character on uh, Deep Space Nine. Well, I know Trek tends to reuse quite a few actors, often in very different roles. So, Well, and also even, although she maybe only had, you know, 20 minutes of screen time, for people like us, we watch these episodes over and over. <laughs> so in our heads, she's had, you know, many hours of screen time. Well, and I was just proud of the fact that we got to do the guys who created the first woman captain of the Enterprise back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She could, well, yeah, she can say now she is an Enterprise captain. <laughs> yeah. Then there's uh, Christopher McDonald, who the, the whole meme now is uh, you put him on your show when you want it canceled, which would have been dangerous for season three TNG, but uh, he's yes. also pretty good here. <laughs> I, uh, Matt's just Googled the role, which I now realize is where I recognize him from, the Shooter McGavin. Yeah, I couldn't remember the actor's Gilmore. name. All I can remember is Shooter McGavin. <laughs> <laughs> I have to tell you, there was a funny uh, blooper that never made it on the show for obvious reasons, but in the scene where he and Tasha are in 10 forward and she's ordering rations, lunch rations or whatever, and they're chatting back and forth, and um, she keeps calling him lieutenant, and he's like, don't call me lieutenant. Yeah, I won't salute if you won't. So the funny thing was in one of the uh, takes, and I was down on the set when this happened, uh, he said, "He said, don't call me Lieutenant. Call me Richard." And she responds, "Okay, Dick." <laughs> <laughs> you could get away with that in Discovery, maybe not in TNG. <laughs> I know there's a punk rock album in the '90s, which the the title was not Richard but Dick. <laughs> uh, and Whoopi Goldberg was funny. She was a lot of fun to work with. When I was a production assistant on the show, she used to get away with murder because she was Whoopi Goldberg. But one day, U2 was filming a, a, a music video on a nearby soundstage. So she convinced me and Will Wheaton to go with her over to the other stage, and she introduced us to Bono and the, the band. And we're like, and I'm like freaking out the whole time because she didn't tell the assistant directors that she was leaving the stage. And I said, <laughs> I said, if they find out, I'm going to get fired. <laughs> I said, you're not going to get fired. I'm going to get fired. <laughs> but she was crazy. Uh, I, I loved working with her. You've, um, you mentioned Will Wheaton there. Is this the first time we see Wesley in a uniform? Yes. Oh, nice. Another little first. And the, and the funny thing was uh, Susan Sackett, who worked for Gene Roddenberry, her and her, her and her writing partner had uh, sold a story that was in the pipeline where he, where Wesley gets promoted to, to Ensign and gets his uniform for the first time. And we sort of beat her to the punch. <laughs> <laughs> but she was like, I can't believe you did that. It's <laughs> <laughs> an alternate timeline. It's cool. Yeah, yeah it doesn't quite count. <laughs> Before we move on completely, um, we're talking about Tasha. Had she actually fully come back to the show, this could have been an episode where you could have done it, I guess. Uh, I guess if you stayed in an alternate universe. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> you'd have had to go back with the sea and then somehow get frozen or something like that. But, yeah, that I could have seen a way that they could have written it into that, that story. Well, that's part of the fun of sci-fi, though. You always have a, a way to uh, tech the tech. Yeah. <laughs> Which, as you mentioned earlier, this episode works out quite well in the end because it... It doesn't it, do too it much of that, yeah. It doesn't tech the tech so much. 
Um, it's it's funny that we were ever allowed to do this episode because Rick Berman didn't like time travel stories and he didn't want to do them. And which I always thought was ironic because when they started Star Trek Enterprise, it was nonstop time travel <laughs> like stories in every episode practically. So we started a flood. We opened a floodgate of time travel. Yeah, in the past few years, I, I've I've opened my track way more to the philosophical points, but um, mind bleepery was always my my main key into any series. Uh, time travel being one of the main ways to do that. <laughs> See, I. I don't dislike a good time travel episode, but I I don't like my Trek to have too many. Yeah, you're gonna this bounce. this one's right in the sweet spot for me because they're not just bouncing around messing with time and it f- makes everything feel inconsequential. This one, the time travel comes with like real weight and stakes. Well, and our characters didn't do the time travel. That de- that definitely helps. Yeah, it was just sort of a side effect of the other ship coming through spatial anomaly so that that was cool too yeah like we're, we're doing first contact tune great movie but at the end there's like okay i guess we're going back <laughs> right. it's like it's just like uh you know uh putting the car into drive or something the only thing that we weren't allowed to do which i was disappointed in was at the end of the show when the Klingons tell the Enterprise to surrender and prepare to be boarded, I wanted them to show the Klingon on, commander on the view screen. And it was going to be Michael Dorn? Yeah, as, yeah. as Worf. And I, Michael Pillar's like, oh, that's that's a step too far. There's so <laughs> many there's so many coincidences already in this episode. I guess. Nobody's going to believe it. Nobody's going to believe Because no, I was sat there watching it today, having not seen it for a while, assuming that's what was about to happen. <laughs> I mean, even, even if it was just his voice, it would right. be nice. I mean, nowadays, that would be like the Easter egg of the day, right? I was going to say, if that's too much of a coincidence, how about his granddad being Kirk's lawyer? <laughs> <laughs> and I was in that scene, did you know that? Oh, I didn't know. Where, where Kirk and McGuire are on trial on the Klingon home planet in Star Trek VI, I was one of the Klingons up in the rafters. Oh, wow. <laughs> How how much of the makeup did you have to wear? So the the funny thing is, the actors who are close up on camera are the only ones who get the right. Face. That's what I was wondering. Yeah, all of the guys in the rafters, we had these rubber masks, and they were <laughs> they were hot as hell, and the sweat was dripping through the eye holes, and it was it was a miserable experience. Yeah. Yeah, I, I had my one chance to be an extra on a film. I didn't take it for, not for makeup reasons, but because they wanted me to get up at five, and I wasn't <laughs> having any of that. <laughs> well, it took two days to film that trial scene, and on the second day, half the extras didn't come back. <laughs> for those of us who were left in the rafters, because it, it was a 360-degree set, and they would show it at different angles. So you had to move to each. move us all around the set and tell us to stand <laughs> in different positions. <laughs> so I'm in every angle. I've got to be a little gun-ho there, okay? <laughs> it'd be like when you play a sports video game, you start noticing, oh, that's the same guy in the crowd at every different stand. Yeah.
Um, getting in, I, I think we've already all come very clearly on the page that this holds up. I'm pretty sure it ranks in pretty much everyone's top five TNG episodes. <laughs> Once upon a time, it was in the top two. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, definitely when it aired, it was. <laughs> yeah, it was probably the best one when it aired. But, uh, well, I'll well, you know, <laughs> I worked for Michael Pillar for many years, including after he left Star Trek and we, he started his own production company. And because he wrote Best of Both Worlds, um, he and I used to always argue over which which episode was more popular on Next Generation, Best of Both Worlds, or Yesterday's Enterprise. So we finally agreed that he wrote the best two-part episode, and I wrote the best one-part episode. That's a nice Fair compromise. Enough. There you go. <laughs> so um, the, the prune juice, is that pillar filler, or, or who, who came up with a warrior, not, warrior drink? That might have been Ron Moore. I'm not sure who wrote the the teaser but that was pretty funny yeah yeah so tell me tell me the story about your parents pranking you oh no no this was um <laughs> I, I went to a, like a local church like uh as a boy scout and one of the other boy scouts his father was like a priest at methodist church and i went to their their new year's thing and uh i won the prize of like prune juice <laughs> so i went home i was like excited i was like hey look i won something and my parents were, like we're pretty sure that's a practical joke <laughs> <laughs> you won the movie prize for, like, i won the prune worse. juice it, was, it would have been a few years before this episode aired so i couldn't make it might have been about the same time maybe, maybe this episode's why i thought that prune juice was yeah, you won a warrior's drink <laughs> <laughs> i got a warrior's drink <laughs> that's pretty funny pretty funny yeah it's like getting excited for winning the wooden spoon hey wooden spoons can be useful yeah sometimes you need the prune juice i think i need one actually so Wait, prune juice or a wooden spoon, no, wooden spoon. Okay. definitely don't need prune juice <laughs> um, what was the part of your notes where uh, you said something about uh Guinan was talking to Orf about human women and Oh, oh! his laugh at that was just so, so wonderfully condescending. <laughs> yeah, the idea that a human woman could handle him. <laughs> I, I guess this is where Worf starts becoming the, the, the Star Trek punchline. Uh, although, on the other end, Michael Dorn also becomes the best Star Trek one-liner. So, yeah. And <laughs> DS9, he just uh, always comes through with the, the fantastic one-liner anyway. <laughs> yep. Although, with like one thing I really liked, just cinematography, uh, both times you see they've switched universe, it's the shot of um, Stuart and the camera pans slightly and you see the security officer behind him. That was nice. Oh, yeah. Because the first time when you do it, it's Tasha, and then the second time it's Wolf, and you know Yeah, that was pretty cool. The only thing that, that drove me crazy about that scene was they're all watching the Enterprise C come through the, the, the portal or whatever, and... And Tosh is reading off the call numbers, NCC1701. And nobody's reacting. They're just sitting there. And then she says, C. And they all go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's weird enough that it's 1701. They were still processing the numbers. You know, sometimes it takes (laughs) (laughs) And I was on the set when they were doing that. And I just kept thinking, oh, my God, somebody would recognize those numbers. (laughs) Like, it's their own numbers. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> see Little i never like say that. it 1701 i always say 1701 i don't know maybe, maybe it's a british thing i, I think it's because like it looks a bit like a year yeah <laughs> <laughs> so, so i've never thought now but until now about how weird it is that i say it that way now i don't know how i say it oh well <laughs> <laughs> i think i say 1701 too but 
but I think in that scene, she's like reading them out. Like, it's definitely one seven zero one in that scene, definitely. Yeah, and I'm thinking they would all recognize that number. <laughs> well, if I read this year, I, I think this episode's airing in 2021. But if I was like, it's the year 2020, you take a second. Yeah, maybe that's yeah. why they don't react because she's reading it. Weird. It's the year 2020, <laughs> the the crappy one. <laughs> it's 2020. Oh, <laughs> let's not go back to that year. <laughs> like too fast, yeah, too furious. Too oh, too oh. <laughs> You've seen the meme with uh, Picard and Wesley in the turbo lift, right? And and Wesley says, "How come the doors on the Enterprise uh, don't have handles?" And Picard says, "You don't know about the year 2020." <laughs> I didn't see that one. No, but that's good. <laughs> Yeah, running a mile a second. Um, I don't want to kill anyone too, anyone's time too much. Are there any other major points that uh, Eric or Luke you want to make about this one? Uh, there's nothing I wanted, else wanted to bring up about the episode. Uh, Eric, I can see you've got some memorabilia behind you. But what I'm you noticing, the- you've got the um, that little Tory gate. What's that one from? That's I was born in Okinawa. Oh, wow. I didn't know That's that. Amazing. My parents uh, got that when I was a baby, and it's got my name and birth date. Oh, amazing. I was born at Camp Cooey Army Hospital. Ah, there you go. We we had a run down there a few years ago, and fortunately got to see a surety castle before it unfortunately caught on fire. But Yeah. Yeah, I fell asleep on the beach in Okinawa and burned my legs really bad. (laughs) That's my main memory of Okinawa. It's probably changed a lot since I've been there. 57 years ago. I mean, it's one of those places that it, when you're there, it still kind of looks like the 70s. So maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I just gather it's more touristy now, more hotels. And- but we were, we were literally staying in like a hotel complex, super touristy area. So it definitely was for us. <laughs> <laughs> they were nice enough to take us to the uh, top half of the island with fewer people. So that was nice. Yeah. But, and well, and um, you're, you're now in France, are you? Yep. Retired. That's so that's what it's, I, I connected your Facebook. It looks like a, a lot of wine and flowers, is it? Oh, yeah. Sounds like France. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're in a relatively rural area, so I get to do a lot of nature photos. And until we get to travel again, we got so many places we want to visit. That was one of the reasons we decided to move here. Because Captain Picard was born here. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're, we're in Nagano, Japan, and, uh, you know, without the ability to travel. Well, there's plenty of things to do in Nagano. This, this is a good year to live somewhere rural, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> there's plenty I can and do. And there's so many amazing villages everywhere you go in France that even, once they lift the lockdown, we can at least go visit the, the smaller villages and stuff. That's nice. But, um, Eric, I guess we're wrapping up. Do you have anywhere on the internet uh, people might head for um, some information on you or something you'd like to share? Well, on Facebook, I have a page called Yesterday's Enterprise where <laughs> I just post general Star Trek stuff that people can find me there. And I also have a personal blog called boldlygoing.com or dot .blog. Dot blog. And it's not just about Star Trek. <clears throat> it's basically about 
my adventures traveling and living in France and but I always sort of try to connect it to Star Trek. So I did a vlog enter before we left California because the last place we got to visit was the winery where they filmed the the episodes of Picard where he lives in France. Oh, yeah. And and they gave us a private tour of the of the villa. And <clears throat> so that was kind of fun. And then someday when we're allowed to travel again, we want to go to the part of France where Picard supposedly was born in the future and do a blog about that. And we have, I have some uh, friends who live in France, like actress Carolyn Seymour, who, who appeared in several episodes of, of Star Trek. She was a Klingon or a Romulan commander in the episode where Troy was disguised as a Romulan. Okay. I've watched that one quite recently. And she just lives a couple hours away. And there's a French fan club in France that made me an honorary member this year. So we're hoping we'll have a chance to get together with the, the fans and do some fun stuff once the pandemic dies down. How is your French? Uh, <laughs> we're we're pretty... the same with Japanese. That's <laughs> <laughs> well, our Japanese, so you'll get the same response. Yeah. <laughs> it, I, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Um, to be a long-term resident, you ha it's kind of a requirement. Yeah, same here. My biggest hurdle coming up will be uh, trying to get a French driver's license. I hope it works I, better in Japan. <laughs> I, I have to study the French driver's manual and then take a test, so we'll see what happens. I had to take the Japanese test 15 times to get my license. <laughs> I'm lucky because as a Brit, I can just convert my license. It's not so complicated. But yeah, Americans American, can't do that. Okay. We got to do the practical test, and just, like if you're a centimeter off, a fail. <laughs> well, the weird thing is in, in France, if you're from a specific state that allows you to exchange your license, there's like 20 states that allow it. Right. California is not one of those states, so <laughs> I have to start from scratch. No. At least in, in French, the, the words are, are... Same alphabet, at least. <laughs> yeah, same alphabet. <laughs> I don't know how you learn how to do Japanese. Very slowly is the answer. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Sorry, we're, we're, we're basically an audio podcast. I, I might post a video, I don't know, but um, is that a Star Trek-themed Aloha shirt there? Uh, Christmas? Yeah. Christmas? Yeah, it looks like it. Well, it's not Christmas. Oh, it's okay. just a Retro sixties. Uh, oh, I dig it. Uh, I was seeing the Enterprise as like a reindeer. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I thought Christmas. But yeah, that's it. I, I I used to have a wide selection of my Hawaiian Aloha shirts, so I always appreciate that sort of thing. <laughs> so I guess I didn't need to wear the shirt if it's just audio. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I am glad you wore a shirt for our benefit. At least. <laughs> um and. Yeah, Luke, I, we, we recently finished our Monster Month, but you want to tell us where to find a few more of the monsters? You can find, well, you can find our podcast on Twitter at MLSFSpod. We're also on Facebook, YouTube, Apple Podcasts. Just search Matt and Luke Sci-Fi Sanctuary. If for some reason you want to hear more of my voice, you can find my Pokemon podcast on Twitter at Luke Loves PKMN and my Monster Hunter podcast at Monster Mash Pod. And if you like the music you heard during this podcast, you can find Matt's music at rovingsagemedia.bandcamp.com. I just let him do that now, because if I do it, I'll just start stuttering and staring off into space. <laughs> Every time I do that advertising spiel, I hate myself a little more. <laughs> I know my wife said I should have read a copy of my book, Yesterday's Enterprise, but since it's not video, it doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, uh, as we were talking before, we, we, we'd love to have you back to talk a bit about uh, Insurrection. I believe you 
edited what you edited Michael Pillar's book for that, did you? Well, I was the script coordinator for the movie. Right. I worked with Michael through the entire development and the five thousand versions of it that he wrote. And then I um worked with him to um when he wrote the book, The Making of Star Trek Insurrection. I I did all of the typing for the book and all the proofreading and formatting and all that kind of stuff. I, I read the what? Oh, I read it a few years ago. I quite enjoyed it, so I'll probably have to reread it again before getting into Insurrection. But <laughs> yeah, uh, Insurrection was an interesting process for sure. But uh, as for now, we're we're wrapping up that. Enterprise from yesterday, so. Yep, Eric, you, and I'm afraid the listeners at home are going to have to go back through that rift and die for us. <laughs> to save the future. Yep, there we go, to save the future. <laughs>
the bottom of the transformation I'm the passage bring the sun in an exodus from ring of Saturn God's great past just a flash in my wingspan just a flash in my wingspan man just a flash in my wingspan man But 